Hi, I'm John Watson, and we're listening to, in inverted commas, Beyond the Grid. Close inverted commas. <laughs> Lovely. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35-2 wireless headphones. My guest this week is a driver who achieved a lot of firsts during his career. He won five races, of course, but one of those was the first and only victory for Penske. Another was the first ever win for a carbon composite chassis, and he remains the only driver to have won a race from as far back as 22nd on the grid. I'm talking, of course, about John Watson. During the summer of 1981, John was the darling of the British tabloids. He won the British Grand Prix for McLaren in that carbon composite car, and the crowd at Silverstone invaded the circuit after the race on a scale that had never previously been seen. It was Watson mania. But for all that celebrity, John was and remains one of the sport's good guys. Notably, he was there for Nicky Lauda in the immediate aftermath of his fiery accident at the Nürburgring in 1976, and the two of them went on to become teammates and firm friends. So on the day of Nicky's funeral in Vienna, who better to have on the show than Watson? I hope you enjoy our conversation. John, welcome to Beyond the Grid. Lovely to have you on the show. Um, it's been just over a week since Nicky Lauda passed away. So I thought we could start by talking about him because you were teammates for 46 races and good friends. How would you describe Nicky's legacy? A brand, an icon, somebody who has become bigger than the sport and largely because of the awful day at Nürburgring in 1976 when he almost lost his life. But just the graphicness of the incident, the car catching fire, and a very brave Arturo Mazzario straddling the cockpit to drag Nicky out of the cockpit. And then all that followed thereafter. And, uh, of course, Nicky, because he wasn't a vain man in the sense of what he looked like, he often said, look, I'm the same man. Maybe my face looks different, but I'm the same person. So why would you not like me now if you liked me previously? So it's got to be the, the cap, the face, the incident, the legacy, icon, the brand. Was he as fast post that accident as he was before? It was difficult for me to judge because what Nicky had achieved in Ferrari primarily uh, was to take the team, along with Mauro Frigieri and Luca de Montezemolo, onto a, a new platform. The better judge, I think, of Nicky uh, prior to the accident would have been his 73 season in BRM, when I think he worked miracles in that car. And I remember watching him in Monte Carlo in 73 and thinking, Nicky's getting on with the job. He's doing a very good job. But in 74... He and Clay were probably fairly evenly matched. In fact, at the end of the year, Clay was in a position to win the world championship. And when you got Luca de Montezemolo running down the grid to everybody who's around Clay in the grid and saying, John, John, if Clay's behind you, would you let him go? Excuse me, this is a race, Luca. Sort off. <laughs> Talking of teammates. Um you were with him for three seasons, but you had some pretty mighty teammates. You had Prost, obviously, um, Patrick Tornbay. I don't know if we put him in that category. Where did Nicky stack up? Was he the fastest teammate you ever had? I think probably the quickest teammate would have been Alain. 
but we were only together in his first year in Formula One, and it was a tough year for me, but at the end of the year, it worked out quite well. I think when Nicky joined Brabham, what I hadn't appreciated and I learned was not only did he join Brabham in 78, but he brought along his personal sponsor, the red hat with the Parmalat on it. And even further, he brought Parmalat along as the team sponsor. So what it gave him uh, was what I would describe as leverage. But on top of which, he brought his second world championship. So Brabham have now got a driver of a level of credibility they'd never really had, certainly not under the, the Bernie Eccleston regime. And Nicky not only was a great racing driver, was a very smart, clever operator. He knew how to form uh, whatever he required in the team around him. And he, he was not shy to take advantage. Now, if he could gain something over me, for example, in 78, he would have done it. But it was done in a way which there was no malice in it in terms of, you know, some drivers can be unpleasant, but it wasn't any malice. He just used what I would describe as the tools that he brought to the team to his best advantage. So if I say to you, what kind of a man was he? I mean, he sounds quite ruthless. Is that fair? But also, was he a laugh? Did you have jokes with him? Well, I mean, to call him ruthless, he was doing what he was doing for himself. And he was trying to form and shape the team around him as he had done successfully at Ferrari. The thing that I enjoyed being a partner, being a teammate of Nicky, was that out of the car and even sometimes in a race, but principally out of a car, I felt I liked the guy a lot. And I think he liked me as well. We got on, I feel well. And there were many occasions in that 78 season when in the evening and more so maybe in the events, the flyaway events outside of Europe, you'd go out for dinner. And Nicky, Bernie, me, and whoever else got dragged along, they were fun. It was actually, you laughed. You really had a great number of hours, an evening, or whatever. And in fact, in in Rio de Janeiro, uh, the Saturday prior to the Grand Prix, because everybody had moved up from Argentina to Rio, went to a nightclub in Rio called Hippopotamus. Now, I'm not a nightclub goer, but I have to say that was the best evening night I've ever had in a nightclub. It was just fun all the way, innocent fun. But around about one o'clock in the morning, Nicky decided, okay, I'm going, I've had enough. But of course, he'd had about, I don't know how many whiskeys, but one too many for sure. And he went to his friend and associate, Santi Gadini who'd been with him at Ferrari and Gadini had come over and working for Parmalat, but primarily for Nicky. Gadini, Gadini, give me the car keys. I'm going home to the hotel. Gadini took the keys and, you okay, Nicky? Yeah, I'm okay, I'm okay. So Nicky jumped into the, the courtesy Alfa Romeo. Now he knew all he had to do was get to see the water, turn right and five kilometers up the road, but get to our hotel. So he gets in the car, uh, 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 sets off, oh, there we go, there's the water, turn right, follow that. What he forgot was there's a lake in the middle of Rio, and he drove around the lake about five times before the penny dropped. And so he parked the car, which by which time he'd managed to get a flat tire. I said he curbed it. He said, no, 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 no. You curbed that, didn't you? No. So the first thing I know about this is the following morning, I get a call from Santi Gadini. 
John, John, where's, where's, where, where's the car? What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, Nicky took the I, I didn't go with Nicky. Oh. So Santa Gadini spent the best part of Sunday looking around Rio's streets to find this Alfa Romeo. <laughs> and that, that was the kind of relaxed yeah, yeah. fun. I mean, it was innocent fun. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he would tell it slightly differently. Mm. And I'm sure where he is right now, he's saying, no, 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 you're wrong, you're wrong. He's looking. the facts are the ones you've just heard. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but look, talking of history... Now, let's educate people into the history of John Watson. And I want to take you back, if I may, to your early career. Um, we've been talking about your teammate, Nicky, three seasons. When you came into Formula One, you didn't really have teammates. And when you did have a teammate, they were sort of changing from race to race for those, yeah. for those early seasons. How difficult was it for you coming in and not having a reference? Well, it was at a time... My first Formula One race was actually a, a non-championship race at Brands Hatch, and it, it gave me an opportunity to realise that I could compete at a level with those other competitors in the race. So in 1974, Paul Michaels of Hexagon, it's a motor dealership up in North London, Highgate, did a deal with Bernie. I was under contract to Bernie at this time to acquire the 1973 Brabham BT42 and the factory team were there and moving on to the BT44. So Paul set up the team. We got the car from Brabham, whatever number of Cosworth engines, which you could buy at whatever the price of the day was, a couple of fuel and gearboxes, and employed two mechanics, a de facto team manager, and a, you know, a driver to take the truck around and a tire guy. So there's probably about six people in total running a Grand Prix car. And you could think back to the days of Rob Walker, probably had very similar numbers initially. Then Hesketh came along, and then yeah, the whole circus of the, the, the Hesketh, you know, just down the road. We're talking at Silverstone. Yeah, I know. But it was, it, it, it was a point at which, and what Hesketh did in 73 with James Hunt and the customer march made a lot of people in Formula One think, well, what's the point on us being a manufacturer, being a constructor, when you can buy a car off the shelf and go out and virtually almost win a Grand Prix, mm. which is what James nearly did in 73. Mm. So it was a, a, a totally different time. Because then in 75, you were, I mean, it seemed to me you were driving a different car every weekend almost. <laughs> well, one of the things you did do in this time was drive a different car every weekend because in 74, I was driving for Hexagon in, in, in Grand Prix. I was driving for John Surtees in Formula 2. In a, and then odd weekends... I would be driving in a sports car. So if you weren't racing every weekend, you thought you'd got halitosis or something. Mm. So it's just, a, but I meant in Formula One, because in 75, you had, what is it, your 30s, you were in the Lotus, you did yeah. a race for Penske. Well, at the end of 74, uh, Paul, uh, Paul Michaels realised that it wasn't going to be feasible to continue. Now, there had been discussions, uh, I think, with Gitan in France to bring a, a French driver, I think Jean-Pierre Beltois was the driver in mind, and run a two-car team, whether that was going to be with a customer car or whether it was going to be with a, a self-manufactured car. But that didn't materialise. So late days in 74, Paul said, look, I can't continue, it's not viable. So we're pulling the plug. By which time there was nothing left. And the only seat available was with John Surtees. And John rang and said, look, 
this is what I got. It'll be a single car entry. Would you like to drive for me? I had the friendship, the relationship with John in 74, and I'd known him. We'd driven to a number of events throughout 74. I found John was very interesting and very good company. In contrast to what many other members but, of the of the Formula One paternity would have said. Well, Jill, that's what I was going to ask you, because a lot of drivers have said that he was quite a difficult guy to race for because he was trying to, he was telling you what to do. He was telling you how to set up the car and you just kind of, he didn't give you any space in which to work. I mean, that may have been the case with other drivers. I mean, I was just very happy to have the opportunity to continue driving albeit in a car that was not going to be as competitive as the BT44 Brabham that I just stepped out of. But my feeling was I'd rather be on the inside doing my best than standing on the outside thinking what might have been. So simply, if you're a Grand Prix driver or a race driver, get in a car and race. Don't stand by the sidelines. Get in there. You've got to be in it to win it, haven't you? Exactly. So when you get the call from Penske for a full season in 76, that must have been a massive moment for you through the 75 season uh for the reasons i can't quite recall john had uh, john Sotis didn't enter a car um for the german grand prix and then the italian grand prix and through that 75 season but probably even prior to that heinz hoffer who was the team manager at penske it was quite normal to walk down a pit lane and stand and speak to a team principal or a team manager of a team, just purely out of friendship, whatever. And Heinz had said, you know, if you're ever going to make a move or an offer comes up, you know, let me know because we don't know what Mark's going to do, Mark Donahue. And that all then came to a head at, uh, in Austria, 75, where Mark tragically lost his life. Because uh, John had not entered cars in two Grand Prix, and it wasn't clear if he was going to even go and do the, the Canadian or the, the US Grand Prix, I felt I'd got a, an escape, and it was an offer which I didn't want to, to, to decline because the opportunity to move into a team, Roger's team, would have been the best move that I was going to be able to make. So the change came final Grand Prix of the year at Watkins Glen, and then for the remaining part of 76. Do you feel that Roger had fallen out of love with Formula One by the time you joined them because of Donahue's death? Was he already looking for an out, do you think? No, not in the least. 100% committed at the start of 76? Absolutely. Yeah. And the reasons I feel, um, and they were kind of explained, I think, at the time, was Roger was involved in NASCAR, uh, involved in USAC at the time, IndyCar, uh, Formula One. But at the same time, he was expanding his business interests. And to a large degree, uh, he was using motorsport, A, as something that he loved, and he had been a, a very good driver in his day. But also, it was a great mechanism for networking, for bringing in investors or bringing in business partners via well, come and join me at a weekend's motor racing. Mm. But where Formula One was slightly different to the other domestic series, first of all, it was European-based, and he didn't have quite the hands-on uh, involvement that he would have had in the other two series. In 77, had he continued, I think it was mandated that you had to be a two-car entry. The idea of being a single-car entry was not going to be acceptable anymore. So that was going to mean a, a significant uh, expansion of the team, 
it was going to mean a significant uplift in the budgets. And I, I think one of the things Roger did was that he probably undervalued the, the level of exposure he gave to his business partners, the, the sponsors, because it was being used as a mechanism to network within industry. So consequently, the whole package began to look like it was becoming almost further detached from what he was achieving in America with IndyCar and with NASCAR. And I think he had to make a very pragmatic decision, a very, very tough decision. And I don't know if he regrets it today or not, but I'm sure it was a very sad day, very sad early hours of the morning when I received his phone call. And I, I know from Roger's voice, that phone call, that he was, he was gutted. Hmm. Isn't it crazy to think he's just won his 18th Indy 500 on Sunday? He's still at the top of his game. But what kind of a Formula One team did he run? Well, it was a small, single-car team. And what Roger had done is create the platform for the team then to establish Dan and Poole and Dorset, employed Jeff Ferris, who designed the cars, and Jeff had been at Brabham previously, Heinz Hoffer, who he had met, I think, on a ski trip, because Heinz was working in America as a ski instructor and met Roger, and they just got on really well. And Heinz and Roger just clicked. And Roger said, look, come and work for me. So Heinz then had the responsibility of the management of the day-to-day -day running, reporting to Roger on the Formula One team. And we must talk, obviously, about Austria. Mm. Um, wonderful day. Your first Grand Prix victory, Penske's first Grand Prix victory. And there's a tale about the beard, because our younger listeners may not be aware that you, <laughs> you, you definitely carried a beard in those early days. And uh, it wasn't there the day after the Grand Prix win, was it? No, there's a apocryphal tale about the beard when we were discussing the contracts uh, to join the Penske Formula One team. I had had a beard for a number of years, and um, in fact, I'd wanted to shave it off. And in the discussions with Roger, nothing was mentioned about the beard, but because how Roger, uh, how his team was presented, he presented at the highest level, and certainly higher than any Formula One team was doing at that particular time. That's really interesting. So when I say what sort of team did he run, he was massively into the presentation of how everyone yes. looked. and everybody would look immaculate. And it was, a, it was a new benchmark in terms of how teams would look. This is primarily in America, but it transferred across to Formula One. Roger wasn't a fan of facial hair. He wasn't a fan of, you know... He sounds very like Ron Dennis. Well, yeah. <laughs> Hair down to your shoulders. I mean, the the European style. I mean, you think of people like Kojak, who was working for for McLaren and James Hunt's mechanic at this time. Kojak had head of hair would have made Rory Gallagher look. I mean, so it was part of the the Penske concept. No no discussion was made about the beard in the negotiations, but I brought it up and I said, "Look, Roger, I'm I I know you're not a big fan of beards." But let's sit down and think about it. And the day I win, you win, we win our first Grand Prix, I'll shave the beard. And it was a way, a nice way of you know, getting rid of the issue. And when I came back to London on the Sunday evening, Heinz was there, Roger was there, went to bed, went up to the bedroom first, went to the bathroom, got the razor out, took the whole lot off, 
And if you remember, in, in Britain, 1976 was an extremely warm summer, and everybody had a lot of you know, colour on their face. So I had a two-tone face. So where the beard had been, it was you know, white. Where the rest of my face was, it was you know, a nice bronzy colour. And came down to breakfast the following morning in the coffee shop. And I got down before Roger and Heinz and sitting there, I saw them coming in. And Roger looks around and says, where's Watson? Where's Watson? And I went, over here, Roger, Roger. They're looking around, couldn't see me. And I mean, I think Roger was surprised. Not that I had shaved it, but I'd done it at the earliest opportunity. So it was a little bit of fun. And a great win too. It was a good win. I mean, I think it was what was probably, it was a difficult day and, and particularly one front because it was one year following on the loss of the driver who had been the linchpin of the whole Penske racing empire, Mark Donoghue. So it's ironic that the one year down the road when the team had left, you know, not knowing what was going to happen, 75 to 76, actually leaving the Austrian Grand Prix in 76 with their first victory. And in fact, it's the last victory in a Grand Prix by an American-owned team. Now, that at least... That victory put you on a roll. So when you get that phone call from Roger saying that he's going to quit Formula One, I guess there were a few offers out there, but you went to Brabham the following year. And first question about that is, how did Bernie compare to Roger as a team principal? Well, your guess is wrong. There weren't a lot of options. There, well, what, what took place was on the morning following Roger's phone call, I got on the phone to Heinz, and Heinz was you know, in the same situation I was in. He said, look, come down to Poole. Let's see what we can organise. So I went down to Poole, and first person we spoke to was Bernie Eccleston. And Bernie thought Heinz was you know, pulling his leg. It, it took him about five minutes to realise, no, Roger has withdrawn his Formula One entry, and you've got a seat at Brabham. Um, I, want, I, want you, I want to get John into that seat. So I had a discussion and Bernie said, all right, yeah, yeah, come up to my apartment in London. But Bernie had a slight problem because Clay Regazzoni had been nominated by Martini to be the driver of the second car because Carlos Reutemann had done a Carlos thing, jump ship, and had gone to Ferrari, had been cherry-picked by Ferrari to maybe fill in for Nicky, and that's another whole story. So went up to London Bernie said, look, Clay's coming over tomorrow morning to sign the contract to drive alongside Carlos Pache. He said, actually, I don't want the sponsor to dictate the driver. I want to sign the driver I want to sign. And he said, basically, I'd rather have you, who would be my driver, than have Clay, who would be Martini's driver. So we signed a contract. But within 24 hours, I was gone from being a Penske driver to being a Brabham driver. Doesn't sound too bad then. The first person you rang, you ended up driving for the next year. Correct. And the, the, the unfortunate uh, situation was that the following morning, Bernie then got hold of Herbie Blash and said, Herbie, I've just signed John. Clay's coming over in the morning to sign a contract to drive for us in 77. Would you go to the airport, meet him when he comes out of the arrivals hall, tell him apologies uh, but John has just signed to drive for Brabham and um, there's no place for you in the team. Sorry, guy. Sorry, chap. 
And that's what happened. Poor that's what happened. Poor, that's poor Herbie Borkay. Yeah, no, Herbie's yeah. had to carry out a lot yeah. of duties, but that yeah. was probably not the easiest one. Yeah. And but Clay, I think was Clay was very relaxed, and uh, he ended up. Was it Ensign he went to in '77? I can't oh. remember. Did he ever do a year in in the Shadow team or not? <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Whatever. There was an option in Shadow, okay. um, but, which I didn't accept. Didn't wasn't interested in. So John Bernie versus Roger. Who ran the better team? The two different personalities. In in Brabham, I would say the team was run primarily by Gordon Murray and Herbie, and then whoever would have been the chief mechanic. So Bernie would not have been the hands-on team principal in the way that maybe other team principals at the time were. I would have thought maybe Roger, because of his other motor racing uh, series, would have been more of a hands-on team principal, but because the Formula One team was on another continent, he didn't have that direct input. There were different personalities. Uh, Bernie's objectives were to run his team with the least amount of interference from a, a sponsor, whereas Rogers, on the other hand, was to draw in as much sponsorship as possible, primarily to create this platform, this networking platform, to enable him to expand his business interests. So Bernie normally, in 70, 73, 74, I think Brabham's ran virtually sponsorship-less. It was only in 75 that Martini, I think, joined. And then Martini, 76, 77. And then they went on and did other, did other things. And Parmalat came in. Bernie was never a fan of having people who could lean on him and you know make his life maybe uncomfortable. But I think he was a fan of yours. How would you describe your relationship with him? Because am I right, when you had your bad F2 accident in Rouen, did he fly you back to Northern Ireland? Have I got that wrong? What happened was... Uh, I mean, that was years before, so yes, you obviously had a, a, a long-standing relationship there was, a, with him. there was Bernie and Jochen Rint were business partners, but also Bernie managed Jochen, his affairs. So I had the accident, and I don't know quite the, the, the paper trail that ended up leading to have me return from Rouen back to Belfast in a plane that was a Bernie Jochen plane. I think Bernie had bought three of these things, and they, they were nice twin turboprop engine private planes, but weren't maybe a Piper or a Cessna. So Bernie managed to unload one into Jochen, I think, and somebody else got one. Anyway, to cut long story short, it wasn't a freebie. We had, we had the family did pay for it. Okay. I believe <laughs> I, I wasn't a part of the detail of it. Yeah. But look, the hospital that I was in was a nightmare, and yeah. I was very happy. As, my, as was my father, who was there with me, to get me home to Belfast, to where I'd basically grown mm. up in, mm. and then was taken into hospital there. But the relationship with Bernie, obviously evolved and did you find it very straightforward to deal with? I mean, clearly from those contract negotiations, it was pretty straightforward. Yeah, it is straightforward. I mean, normally dealing with Bernie um, was a straightforward negotiation. Um, it was top loaded on his side. And I think if you look back at other drivers who have raced for Bernie and have won world championships, notably Nelson Piquet, who at the time he won whatever, he won the championship, when was it? 80, so 81, 83, and then at the end of 85, 86, went to Frank Williams because he got fed up with Bernie not paying what he thought his market rate was. 
And you put a gun to Bernie's head and he's going to say, pull the trigger. I'm not going to pay it. You ought to go, go. There's the door. Hmm. And Anne Jones, open the door, let PK go. <laughs> and PK went. And he won a world championship for Frank. Okay, now it's really interesting that you say you think Gordon Murray was the guy running the ship because I must ask you about the, the fan car, the Brabham fan car of 78. Um, what was it like to drive? How much testing did you do with it prior to going to Sweden? There was a certain amount of testing done and I, I did some of the initial running of the car, I think at, maybe at Brands Hatch. And Nicky likewise had some time in the car. The, the, the big advantage that the fan car had, let's say over the Lotus 79, which was a pure aerodynamic um, sliding skirts, whatever, was that the Lotus gained its downforce by, as the road speed increased, then the square of the speed increased the downforce. Whereas with the Brabham fan car, we had a conventional front and rear wing on the car, but the fan, because it was geared to engine speed, so when the fan was doing whatever RPM and first gear, for example, it was generating the same amount of suction as it would have done at 12,000 RPM in sixth gear. So the benefit of the fan car was that its lower speed up to middle speed levels of downforce would have been greater than the, the ground effect Lotus 79. The Lotus 79 then probably would have gained the advantage in the, the, the quicker middle speed to high speed corners because it was generating a lot of downforce compared to a conventional car. But in a circuit like Anderstorp and the nature of the corners, it worked very well for the, the fan car. And the, probably the, the change that was required from a driver was instead of rushing into a corner and doing what you'd normally do, braking at your normal point and getting the car to the apex, would have been maybe backing off slightly earlier, but getting on the throttle earlier to get the fan to start to suck, to get the downforce, to get the grip, to get the speed off the corner. So that was the principal difference in driving technique and style over a conventional non-grand effect car. Was it correct to ban it? What was your reaction after that? I think the, the reason that it, it didn't get banned, first of all, Bernie voluntarily withdrew it. And the reason he did it is because... <laughs> what was going on there? Because there was a meeting, a, a FOCA meeting convened in Anderstorp where Colin Chapman was spitting feathers, Ken Terrell was spitting generally, Teddy Mayer was running around shaking his wrist, what time is it, what time is it? And all the other manufacturers were up in arms because Bernie and Gordon had stolen a march. They'd done something which was a, the most liberal interpretation of aerodynamic regulations. The purpose of the fan was primarily to cool the radiator. That's what Gordon designed it to do. The secondary benefit was, as I explained, the way it generated its downforce. But there was clearly going to be a, a split bigger than Brexit, frankly. And Bernie took the view, and I mean, in fairness to Bernie, he'd spent a lot of money on the BT-46 for the second time. Because when the BT-46 was introduced, most people have forgotten, it was introduced with a revolutionary cooling system on the car. It had surface panel cooling on the side panels on the triangulated monocoque. And the idea was that you would have a more efficient mechanism of cooling, but by doing away with a conventional core radiator, you effectively gain maybe 60 or 80 horsepower. Because at the time, conventional radiators are like putting a barn door up to airflow. And I did those tests, and I know how much advantage the car had with surface cooling. The problem was the surface cooling 
was inadequate at the time, or the technology was inadequate at the time, and I couldn't do a lap of Silverstone Grand Prix circuit from cold to the end of a lap without it boiling like a kettle. We could have all had a cup of espresso, it was so hot. <laughs> so they, the second innovation in the BT46 was then with the fan car. Bernie saw the, the potential danger to this group called FOCA, and Bernie was looking way, way down the road. He wasn't so concerned about the individual interests of his team. He was looking at the bigger picture of Formula One, and because television was very much in its infancy, he had this vision, and I think it was a, a rolling road vision, of an expansion of the brand or the product called Grand Prix or Formula One or whatever you want to call it. And this was going to create such a, a rift. It could, it could have potentially split Foca at the time, which was not what Bernie thought was going to be a good idea. Do you think this was the first time he'd put Formula One's interests perhaps ahead of his own team's interests? It's the, certainly, it's the most obvious time. There may have been other instances, but certainly this is the most uh, you know, blatant and obvious time where the, the product, which was Formula One, and the potential that it had on a global television platform, Bernie saw the big picture. And it wasn't a flat screen either in those days. But as his driver, were you annoyed that he was taking that stance? Because you potentially had a car there that was going to win every race for the rest well, of the season. Obviously, we had to follow what his direction was. So Bernie said, look, I can't do anything about it now. Let me race the car here. And I assure you that the car will turn up at the French Grand Prix as a bog-standard BT46, which is what it did. And to rub salt into Colin Chapman's wounds, I actually got pole position. You did, yeah. It gave me enormous pleasure yeah. to stuff it up. <laughs> you know, Colin, Mario, not so... Ronnie was a friend, but those two, Mario and Colin, I mean, what a piece of work those two were when it came to, hey, man, that car's throwing rocks out of that fan. Somebody's going to get killed. Yeah, yeah. Horse well, shit. <laughs> <laughs> but John, this was a great insight into what was coming up actually in the next few years because it was a highly political period in Formula One. And there were just two instances that I wanted to ask you about. What are your recollections of the 1981 South African Grand Prix when there were no manufacturer teams in the race at all? I think I was in a B, um, uh, M29 there actually, not on the MP41 because it hadn't actually been yeah. raised. I suppose you've just... just as long as I got my, whatever, 16 Grand Prix a year, um, I didn't probably give it an enormous amount of respect. You say there's no manufacturers there, so you're saying, and I don't remember, was there no Ferrari there? In so no, no Renault, and yeah. Indeed, I now it's coming back. Yeah. Yes, I mean, it was a part of a, of a war that was going on. But remember, this war began in 1979 in earnest, and it surrounded and focused upon me. I think there's a story. Ah, there's a story you your need research to tell. There, Tom, no. have you? <laughs> there's a story you need to tell. No, there's a story. First race from McLaren, Argentina, Buenos Aires, Autodromo, one of my favourite circuits, one of my favourite countries in the world. The race started, I think it was in the second row of the grid, in the M28, which is the best it ever performed. And into the turn one, which is sort of a very quick S's, uh, I found Jody Schechter alongside me and I squeezed him a bit, thinking that he might back out of it. But... Judy didn't back out of it, so we collided. And we spun in the middle of the pack, and mayhem was released. So Judy's car was damaged, wasn't repairable. PK in the Brabham got a broken ankle. 
my car was virtually undamaged, so we got it fixed again on the grid and finished third in the race. But the new president of the FIA, Jean-Marie Balleste, and this is my interpretation, it's not maybe in, 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 uh, in print, was that Balleste used that issue to instruct the stewards of the meeting to effectively, they said, we're going to ban Watson for the year. For that incident. For dangerous driving, is that? Yeah, right. whatever. I don't know what Bella. He used that opportunity to assert himself as the independent and, and because it was an FIA championship, going to put Mosley, Mayer, but principally er, uh, Bernie, back into the box from where they've come. It's our championship. It's not theirs. They better learn to respect so I became the catalyst of all a series of negotiations that took place between Argentina and Brazil. And they sort of, we ended up being, I was on probation effectively for the rest of the year. But, you know, I had to pay a significant amount of, I think it was Swiss francs at the time, a fine, which was paid. I didn't, I mean, the, nobody else paid it but me. And it was basically, I think the stewards were bamboozled by the president, thank God he's dead so he can't sue me for, for libel or for slander. And that was the beginning, if you like, of this tussle between Balestra on the one hand and Bernie and Max representing the teams on the other hand. And South Africa was one of those events, and there were others in 81 as well, where, as you pointed out, manufacturers didn't... It wasn't a points championship race, was it? No, it was a non-championship so, race. So, I mean... I suppose I took the view, it's a race, it's a race, it's a race. Mm. It, it, I wasn't going to turn around to my team and say, well, because it's a non-championship race, that doesn't count. So uh, we went there as the FOCA teams. And, and just out of interest, you, you got paid the same amount of money? Even I have though, no idea. Okay, can't remember. Ask me. Yeah. That's well, <laughs> Tom, ask me questions you can answer. John, look what I can answer. <laughs> well, look, what about perhaps uh, something else? Uh, let's fast forward to South Africa 82 mm -hmm. and the driver's strike. Yeah. Very much led by Nicky. Well, uh, you say that. Nicky was a, obviously a figurehead and one of probably two people. But from my viewpoint, the person that was actually the principal negotiator was Didier Peroni. And, you know, Didier, if you look, if we're talking about maybe off camera, I'm talking about his role in Ferrari and how he was moving. Didier Peroni was a, a smart, intelligent guy, very, very ambitious, uh, articulate, a good negotiator. And I think a lot of the negotiations would have been handled by DDA, partly because he was French and his ability to communicate with the FIA um, and I suppose to a lesser degree Bernie and Max, who were going to try and introduce football-type contracts into Formula One. And Nicky was um, involved, but I, I think Peroni was probably the, the principal, but less visual than, than Nicky would have been. What was the atmosphere like among the drivers? How difficult was it to get everybody to come on board with what you were doing? Most drivers came on board. One or two, I mean, Roberto Guerrero, I think, came under pressure. Um, more from his girlfriend, bursting into tears. And... Um, a couple of others, I think, bailed out as well because they were probably younger drivers. It was, a, it was a, not a very good moment for Formula One. It was a very public display of, 
a split between the drivers. And I think the sympathy would have been with the drivers because when you get a management trying to impose a contract form which was in the interests of the, of the management of a team more than that of a driver, then... So it didn't happen. And the race got underway. I think we didn't have qualifying until Saturday morning anyway. You know what? If Liberty wants to look at an example of how to run a Grand Prix weekend, bin Friday, bin Saturday, Sunday morning qualifying, straight into the race, job done, going like a Boeing. <laughs> look back to Kyle Army 82. But what was it the change? Cap- it changed nothing. Yeah, yeah. Other than, of course, there's other factors now involved in mm. three day or four day Grand Prix. What was the camaraderie like among the drivers? So you're all stuck in a room. Was there much banter? What, what, what did a, you guys talk about? There was a bit of banter. We were, all, we were a bit old. It was a bit like being a boy scout or a cub or something. You know, do I want to sleep in a room with 20 other you know, idiots? <laughs> Uh, I mean, some of them were more amusing than others. I mean, one thing that Gilles Villeneuve uh, played the piano, and he, he could he had one particular piece of boogie boogie woogie he would play, and he played it very well. Um, everybody was sort of getting into their sleeping bag or whatever it was we had to sleep in. Nelson Piquet, who is a piece of work at the best of times, was winding up Carlos Reutemann, who was definitely feeling very out of place, and Carlos. Uh, didn't really enjoy uh, PK's humour. In fact, not many people do. What was... You mentioned um, Gilles Villeneuve's name there. I want to ask you about your attitude to danger because obviously intrinsically involved with Nicky's accident, I think you were there when Nicky was dragged out of the car in 76. You had his head on your lap by the side of the track. You then win the Belgian Grand Prix the day after Gilles Villeneuve was killed um how did the danger aspect affect you well i think that i mean i had an accident in 1970 in Rouen, which was a serious accident so i'd had the big injury i mean it was there were mechanical injuries you know broken bones nikki's accident was very much more graphic and much more unpleasant accident on two fronts one because of the the burns which he carried all the way through his life but also the damage to his lungs But at the time that we were racing, we believed that we had the best designed and manufactured cars. We believed that the circuit safety uh, was the best that was known with the technology that we had at the time. We believed that we had the best medical and whatever backup. And remember, there there used to be the Grand Prix driver's medical unit, whatever, which gradually got tapered out in the middle 70s. We thought we were in the best context. Also, there were still a number of very severe and serious accidents and drivers were being injured and, and tragically drivers were losing their lives. But we, if you look, it's only on reflection that we now look back and think just how much danger we were in compared to a contemporary Formula One car. I mean, I don't know other than the, the tragedy of Jules Bianchi, which was a freak accident. It's almost impossible now, and I touch wood when I say this, for the kind of incidents or accidents that occurred in the 70s to occur in 2019. But what, you just didn't think about it at the time or you just didn't believe it would happen to you? You drove... What, and a sort of arrogance, I'm too good for that? No, no, or? you drove within whatever you perceived to be your personal limits. But we drove to the limit, whatever that limit was. And usually there was a demarcation between tarmac and then you had grass. There was no runoff. I mean... 
I don't want to start becoming misogynistic in some of my thoughts and views, but I mean, we're here at Silverstone today. Silverstone is an old school circuit, but it's a thoroughly modern circuit in terms of its runoff areas because it, it is marketed to be such. Corners like Cops Corner, when I was racing here, was in a five-speed gearbox, was a third-gear corner. Now, in qualifying in an eight-speed gearbox or seventh-speed, whatever way your gearing is, it's just about flat out in qualifying. It is unbelievable. But you've got the space on the outside if it goes wrong to get some degree of recovery. And the whole scale of Formula One, largely uh, and in part since 1994 at Imola when Ratzenberger and Senna were killed. So there's been a massive, massive change in the whole scale of Formula One. I don't think current Formula One drivers have got a clue about the kind of dangers that I or my contemporaries were dealing with, but we dealt with them within that context. Driver etiquette, how has that changed over the years as a result of the improvements in safety, do you think? Well, obviously there are a few lemons out there in the 70s as well, some that you know, were all over the place and um, maybe by the time the race was halfway through that they would have calmed down. But Who did you look out for in the 70s? Who's, if you were coming up to overtake someone, who were you a bit more wary of and who did you enjoy racing? I always, think, I always thought that the, everybody who at the start of a race into turn one could be unpredictable. And I was probably one of those drivers that others may have thought so as well. But one of the things that I practiced and seemed to work quite well was go the, the, the long way around the corner because everybody automatically dives into the apex of the first corner and you get congestion in there. And if you can find a path around the outside and assuming that the track is clean enough to do that, the only danger is as you come off the corner as cars are coming up to complete their, their exit that you don't collide. So that's something that I used successfully to make, you know, first lap of a race, if you can make up three or four places, easy peasy. But do you think drivers were more respectful in your era? I think there was probably a bit more respect, but there was probably to some degree a bigger differential and remember also, we were in, had much larger fields of cars. We were running 26 car grids, and on occasions you'd have maybe 30 cars in qualifying and maybe a 34 or 35 car entry. So we had all this pre-qualifying stuff. But ordinarily, um, I don't know if it's hugely different. I think where the difference lies is that the current crop of drivers have never raced in cars where if you did have contact either with another car or with a barrier, that you could get seriously injured and seriously hurt. And, you know, I don't like occasionally, I see some moves on racetracks where I've expressed quite a lot on this over the last maybe five or so years. And, you know, there are drivers that if I was racing today, I would have a weather eye for, and there'd be others you would feel comfortable to race with. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the people I think is very comfortable to race with is Lewis Hamilton. I've never really seen Lewis do anything other than in his first year in 2007, when he was sometimes quicker than his experience. But where he is now, I'd be happy to race with him every day of the week. He, he's brilliant at positioning the car, isn't it? Something that James mm. Allison, the technical director yeah. at Mercedes, was telling us how... Do you remember Monza last year, turn two, and he just sort of forced Vettel into that spin without actually touching him? It was Well, he has got a, an exceptionally good racing brain. Yeah. And 
he does it in a way which is not aggressive or you know threatening and that's what I enjoy watching and I'm, I think that's something that everybody who watches mm. a Grand Prix can learn a lesson particularly kids who are coming through the junior ranks and you know we've got some young drivers in Formula One and maybe it's easy to carry through some of the habits that you have developed in some of the junior formulas you can get away with it today because fundamentally you've got the circuits to get away with it on, but also the, the car around you is so much better than anything that was conceived way back in the 70s. Mm. Now, John, I must talk to you about McLaren because that's the team uh, with which you had most of your success. Um, you did two seasons with this sort of the old McLaren, the sort of Teddy Mayer run McLaren, and then three seasons with the Ron Dennis run McLaren. How did those two teams compare well let's put it in anybody who might be a music listener or somebody who likes who has hi-fi equipment i love my hi-fi and you can either be an analog listener which is principally what i am so you've got your record deck cost a fortune these days the top end are just outrageous or you go down the digital route which is probably a little bit more analytical maybe not entirely true because you need a certain amount of coloration on the, on the system, the replay system. Anyway, I'm an analog kind of guy. And McLaren at that point under Teddy Mayer would have been what I would have described as analog. It was the end of the 70s. And at the point when uh, ground effects came in, 77-ish, but 78 in particular, Lotus Peter Wright did all the, the groundwork on it. There was a massive change in technology. And when McLaren uh, set out to design their ground effect car, which was M28, it was sadly a poor attempt. And the areas where the car was seriously lacking was its integral uh, chassis, the strength of the chassis. I mean, it used to whip like a, you know, it was not good. In fact, we went to Watkins Glen at the end of 78 to do a test. And I did a couple of laps in the car and they went back in the garage at Watkins Glen, put it up on axle stands, and the front bulkhead forward visually drooped just with the weight of the suspension. On the, st on the axle <laughs> oh, stands. Oh, so oh the dear. car was... That told you everything you needed to know. Yeah. yeah. So the test ended very, you know, very yeah. quickly after. Mm. And by the time then that, that structure was actually at a level where it had integrity, the car weighed a tonne. But aerodynamically, it wasn't at the level... That we'd seen, I mean, we'd overtaken Lotus with the 79, that wasn't a problem. But we'd seen Ligier come in in 79 and move the game on massively. Then Frank Williams and, and Patrick Head brought out, was it 007 or something? Which was a massive step again. Uh, and further down the road, Gordon Murray got the BT48 working. But the 49, another supercar from Gordon. And then other people were picking up. And we were then struggling with what we had moved on to with the M29. But carrying forward some of the, the practices in the aerodynamic area, particularly the, the floors under the car, which I think, if memory serves me correctly, in 79, were made out of an aluminium composite material. And to make air stick to a surface, you need to have essentially radius curves not 90-degree section changes. So Williams had done that, Brabham had done that, Ligier had done it. It really wasn't until about the middle part of 1980 when 
finally, and I think it was with the association of Robin Hood, he designed uh, a, a full underfloor carbon fiber for the M29, which then took the M29 to a, a different level. But even then, it wasn't truly competitive with uh, the competition. And at the end of 1980, by which point Ron Dennis and John Barnard had become part owners of the team. And while McLaren were running Alain Prost in their last roll of the dice, the M30, again following largely the, the philosophy that the analog version of McLaren had followed, were running it. And Alain was finding himself struggling. And John Barnard was running the M29 with me and we were flying. And one of the changes that John made to the M29 in Canada was he stood and looked at it in the pit lane and he said, okay, to the guys, lift the ride height up to four and a half inches of ground clearance. I'm going, hold on a second. I'm going to drive this bloody thing. But what John recognized was whatever the underfloor aerodynamics were, by running the ride heights, for example, as you would have done in effectively a non-ground effect car with a maybe two and a half inches or two and three quarter inches front ride height and a certain amount of rake in the car, what was happening was it was stalling the floor out at high speed. So it, it, it wasn't working as it was designed to work. And by John and having the front of the car raised up, and I went out and did the drive around, what, around, Moscow, around uh, Montreal, and the transformation was unbelievable. Came in with a big smile on my face. And, John, that's fantastic. The car actually now feels like a race car. Yeah, what a great story. But so, so were you apprehensive when you heard that Ron Dennis and Barnard were coming in or did you welcome it from the get-go? The purpose of bringing Ron and John in was to bring in technology, which I would now call digital technology, going away from the kind of concept of, of design and build that the analog McLaren uh, part of the team had been. And, and first of all, John Barnard had very successfully designed and manufactured the Chaparral, which Johnny Rutherford had won in Indianapolis with. So he had a much a younger mind, I mean, a, a more fertile mind in the way of aerodynamics, undercar bodies, and so on and so forth. The big unknown was that John had designed this monocoque and had used carbon fiber which was not new to Formula One, but the difference with how John was using the material was using it as a material in its own right and not as a replacement for aluminium or what other metals would have been in the car. And that was the key to what John did with the MP411 when it came out. Well, we'll come on to that. But so, so you welcomed their arrival, the digitization of Welcomed McLaren. it with a certain amount of apprehension yeah. because, you know... Well, there's a, a great American, or uh, I mean, call him a pilot, it's not the right word, Chuck Yeager, when he broke the world sound barrier in that little bell thingy-bob, no one had done it before. No one knew what would happen when you went through the sound barrier. Okay, when we got into the McLaren MP411 for the first time, we didn't know if had an accident, we were going to end up either alive or dead, or sitting in a pile of carbon dust, and that's it. Didn't know that. Needed to have the accident test at a time when the kind of crash testing compared to where we are today was in its infancy. So how much did they need to sell the idea to you before you drove it? I mean, I think you had to just trust in, in what was being told to you and, and believe in it, uh, partly because of, of the integrity of the 
design and the manufacture of the, the carbon fiber tub. The purpose was, with the, the kind of loads and forces that were coming into the chassis in a ground effect car with a conventional aluminum and steel chassis, to get the kind of torsional rigidity and, and stiffness in the chassis was quite difficult with conventional materials. So by using carbon fiber correctly, you had a much better chance to design a car where you would have a rigid platform from which you would hang your aero parts, and then you would get more continuity and consistency. But secondly, in terms of repeating the chassis, because it was being made in a, in a, in a form of mold, you weren't going to get a Monday morning or a Friday afternoon car, <laughs> which was very important. Yeah. And what John, when he designed the car, it was designed on a full-scale drawing board, and it was designed down to the I mean, unbelievable attention to detail that when the car went together, it went together precisely as it was drawn. Hmm. Whereas, partly in the analogue McLaren days, McLaren was a team that had quite a significant input coming from the factory floor. And on occasions, the guys working on the car, whatever, chief mechanic or whatever, for the ease of convenience, might turn around to the designer and say, no, we're not going to put that oil cooler there because we can't get out. We're going to put it here. <laughs> and that happened. It didn't happen just Mechanics at Mechanics designing the car. <laughs> it, it, it happened. It happened at McLaren, for sure. And I'm sure it happened at other yeah. teams as well. Yeah. Well, talk us through that summer of 81. I mean, it was a real purple patch for you, wasn't it? You were getting podiums, and then you came here, of all places. British Grand Prix, just talk us through the whole... What happened? Ted Rogers, an English comedian, has got a little act he does before a show. Three, two, one. So, finished third in the Spanish Grand Prix in a, a very close finish. Second in the French Grand Prix at Dijon, and then came to Silverstone. But the Silverstone of the three circuits was the one least likely that a Cosworth engine car was going to win on because Renault were coming strong and getting more reliability, more performance. Ferrari had their turbo car, which is a great engine, but a chassis like a, it was an awful, awful, awful in 81. And uh, those were the two principal turbo challengers on a high-speed circuit. Plus, then you had all the other cars with engine cars around you. So we hoped for a good result, but the idea of coming here and winning from the front was probably an optimistic view. But events, dear boy, events. Uh, ended up leading the race, winning the race, and history was made, uh, as well as a lot of exhalation of expectation from everybody in the McLaren Marlboro team that the investment that had been made in this technology had finally proven its worth. And as they say, the rest is history. How did it feel to be the man? You were all over the newspapers. You were the foremost British racing driver at the time. I mean, you must have, must have been loving it. Well, it was, a, it, was a, it was, first of all, it was a very fulfilling uh, result. And I've, I've said this so many times that... Okay, I came first in the race. I had my family there, so it was a wonderful moment for us as a family. For Ron Dennis and John Barnard, who had committed to this technology, to Philip Morris, who had underwritten the technology. But first and foremost, it was a special day for, I don't know how many tens of thousands of people were here on that Saturday, because it was a Saturday Grand Prix. And when the race was finished, and on the slowing down lap, there was a track invasion. And... 
I'd never really experienced. I'd never experienced it before. And when we then did the lap of honour, uh, Jacques Lafitte uh, was with me on the, on the, I think it was a flatbed, Bedford TK we were taking around the track on. Carlos Reutemann, who was, I think, third, declined because he was having another Carlos moment. And as we came out of Cops and climbed up the hill towards, towards Maggots, I turned to Jacques and said, what are these people doing? What are they doing on the racetrack? And he said, John, it's their way of saying thank you for giving us a really wonderful day. And to me, the memory of that, of that event is more about the way that the, the spectators and, and I've met so many in what, the 38 years now since that moment in the summer who say, are you John Watson? I never quite own up to it unless there's something nice at the other end. <laughs> and I've had it happen quite recently. I was there in 81. It was a great day for us as a family. And these were people that are now maybe in their middle 40s, late 40s. They were children when they were there. But that memory has stuck with them. It was just one of those days where maybe I would say the good guy won or the good guys won. Was it your best race? It was a good race. Um, it was a good race because before we had the moment in the Woodcut chicane where Villeneuve finally lost control of the Ferrari. Alan Jones was, Alan was blinded by the smoke. I was behind Alan. And uh, then behind me was my teammate who turned sharp left because he was looking at my gearbox and not looking through the corner, which is basically where you gain through experience. So I managed to clear uh, Villeneuve and Jones. I managed Cesaro's running into the back of me. The engine stalled, got a bump started and picked up where I had to leave off. And uh, eventually, Renault reliability issues. Um, PK had a, either a puncture or a mechanical failure going into Beckett's. And um, that was about it. So the race was mine to lose if I didn't didn't keep my focus. Because I say, was that your best race? Because I would love to ask you about two other races in particular. Detroit 82, Long Beach 83, when you came from the back to win both of yeah. those races. Were they better driver performances from you? Or was it a, purely a tyre thing? Just, just talk us through that. Well, those were both street tracks. Um, Detroit is what I would call a matrix layout. So it was left, right, left, right, left, right. Long Beach was a little bit like that. But um, you had that very long straight, which was the dominant part of the circuit. They, they gave reward, fulfillment in, in different ways. And to go back to Silverstone, the, the, I take it as, a, as, a, as a, a, a weekend, really, more than just the individual race. And as I've alluded to, the, the way in which everybody in the team, but as the driver, I received the gratitude of those spectators. So that makes it unique in the five victories that I've had. The thing about Detroit was the car worked extremely well in race. The problem that Nicky and I had in qualifying was fundamentally the Michelin tyre of the day was being slightly more evolved around turbocharging or between largely Renault because they had more weight and more energy. They could put more static energy into the tyre. With the McLaren, we couldn't generate the grip levels, the tyre temperature in qualifying. So we were further back at the grid than we ought to have been. But put a full load of fuel in the car, start the race, then that extra weight put more load into the tyre, got temperature, which then got the tyre. So that's how it was working. For some reason, I seem to have a knack of being able to race, I think, well, overtake well. And it's not because it's sort of 
something that I do better than anybody else. I just was able to, on those days, catch people, overtake them and pull away. And on one lap in Detroit, I overtook three cars, one of whom was Nicky. Did that make it even more satisfying? Well, it's always nice to you know <laughs> get your teammate. Get your teammate. <laughs> but at the end of the race, Ron was mega upset. Ron was really upset. Not with me, but with Nicky. Because Nicky should have won that race. Explain. Nicky was ahead of me on the track because the race had been started, stopped for, I think, Patrese had gone off, restarted. So I caught up to Nicky, uh, I think it was Cheever and Peroni, and passed all three in the one lap. On a racetrack where you weren't meant to be able to overtake, and here I'm, you know, Thicko from Ireland, catching all those people and passing them. So once Nicky had seen that you could overtake, he then passed Cheever, then passed Pironi, and then it was effectively Rosberg leading, I was second, I think Nicky was third. So I caught up Keke, no problem passing, always fair and clean as far as I was concerned on the racetrack. But because the races had been restarted, there was a, um, I was a minus time on Keke, and I was minus on Nicky. So I got past Keke and pulled away and did whatever I did. Nicky then caught up to Keke and there was a, a minor contact in turn one. But the reality was, had Nicky gotten his finger out earlier and made the passes on Pironi or Cheever and Pironi before I got to him, then he was going to always be ahead of me unless I was going to run him down before the end of the race, which I don't know if I would have done or not. But it was interesting that Ron felt that uh, the team hadn't achieved its potential. And the thing with Ron really was, as much as there was a little bit of a love affair still with Nicky coming to the team and winning, of course, in, in Long Beach, the team was never going to be about me or Nicky. It was only ever going to be about McLaren. And one of the things that Ron was adamant about, that there was nobody in the team that was bigger than the team. That was a bigger problem for Nicky to deal with than it was for me. But that was Ron's you know, motivation. That's the direction of travel the team, under his management, always took. Do you ever look back at that 82 season and think, ah, oh, the championship? Do you sort of rework the season in your mind and just think, well, if I'd done that differently and that had fallen differently, I'd be world champion? I think you can do that, but it's pointless because all you're going to do is you, you frustrate yourself. You, you there were a number of drivers in, in 72 that could have won the world championship. And to some degree, the most unlikely one ended up the world champion. And even now, you guys still call him a legend. Keke Rosberg. <laughs> but John, do you not... I mean, you went into that last race. Uh, how many points down were you? I don't know the number of points, but, but the, the but equation... Not, you could do it, couldn't you? Yes, the, the, the equation that I was presented with was I had to win that race... Uh, and Keke, who was at that point leading the championship, for me to beat him had to finish fifth or lower. Had he finished fifth, which is what he ended up doing, uh, and if I had won the race, then we would have won, we'd have had equal points, but because that would have given me three victories to his one, it would have made me the champion. As it happens, I finished second behind you know, a, a very quick on-the-day Tyrrell. Where that came from, nobody quite understood. But anyway, <laughs> Alberto won the race. I was second and Keke was fifth. Yeah. So he walked out of Las Vegas uh, world champion. <laughs> well, John, it's been a wonderful chat. How, um, how, how do you reflect on it all? I mean, you definitely could have had more than the five Grand Prix wins. I mean, I think of 77, you ran out of fuel a couple of times when in a position to win the race. But 
do you feel you got what you deserved or do you feel had is it a frustration that you didn't win more, that you didn't win World Championship? How, how, how does it all sit with you now? I think if you look back on a career, uh, in my case and my career, I think I could have done better and I should have done better because the area that, for example, I learned with Nicky as a teammate is, is being able to create a scenario or a position within a team that puts you in the you are the driver in the team, regardless of whatever it says in a bit of paper. And one of the things, Bernie, when Nicky came to Brabham in 78, prior to that, Bernie said, what do you think about Nicky joining the team? And I said, Bernie, I have no problem, whoever you want. All I'm asking you is to ensure that we both get equal treatment, equal preparation. There's no differential made. No problem. And then mid-season, I went to Bernie and said, look, this is not quite working as you had indicated it was going to work. And I said, well, John, what do you want? What do you want? Do you want to be number one driver? He turned to his PA, and Jones. And get out Watson's contract. Get out Lauder's contract. Tear them up. Make Watson number one, Lauder number two. He said, John, I tell you, it's nothing about what's on a bit of paper. As it turns out, what, what really actually swung it was not only was Nicky a two-time world champion, a great racing driver, but he had brought a shed load of money to the team. So that gave him so that opportunity and advantage over me in terms of the direction of travel. But equally, Nicky's clarity of thought, his focus, um, very good at using 10 words where I would use 100. He was a good operator. And not only that, he was a great racing driver. So you learned a lot from Nicky Lauder? I saw a lot and I learned a lot. But, mm. you know, it's quite difficult when you, you're dealing with a teammate. In 82 and 83, it was slightly different. And I learned and... I was able to illustrate, you know, what I could do in a racing car. And, you know, it was sometimes not easy. Other times it was very enjoyable. But do you sometimes pinch yourself and think, there I was back in 1955 at Dundrod with Dad, watching the works Mercedes, Fangio, Moss, all that coming over. And here you are now, you've won races, you've had a wonder, wonderful career. I mean, when you look at it in that context, it's little boy's wildest dream well it, it was a dream and it was, a, it was a direction that i dreamt about didn't know how to see it could ever become how it would be fulfilled and you know through family help and getting me on the F formula two ladder was the very beginning of it and at a time when you know my parents would have thought well you know are we giving our son you know is he signing his death warrant literally because that's the level of danger that existed at that time Fortunately, I didn't. There was one occasion probably at Rouen, which was the most dangerous occasion. And then there was a big shunt at Monza in 81. But at that point, the integrity of the MP41 chassis ensured that I walked away from it, literally walked away from it uninjured. Whereas if that had been in a, maybe a, a, an aluminium chassis, it might have been a louder Mark II with but me in the car, not Nicky. So there were two occasions where I felt that you know I could have been in a dangerous position, you adapt and drive around them as best you can and you calculate, in my view anyway, you calculate the risks you're going to take. You don't go into areas where you haven't got an escape. Never ever go into a closing gap without some avenue of escape. And that, If I was going to talk to a young driver today or any young drivers, when you see the sort of stunts that they pull just because they think they're bulletproof, that's a big mistake because eventually and tragically someday, It'll not come off for somebody. 
what wise words never go into a closing gap. Well, John, I think we'll leave it there, but thank you very, very much for your time. Great to speak. Thanks, Tom. Some wonderful stories there about Louder, and as John told them, he told them with a smile. Clearly, he misses Nicky very much, just like the rest of the Formula One community. But there were so many other fascinating insights during our chat. Roger Penske, the Brabham fan car, Bernie Ecclestone and the driver's strike of 1982. John certainly lived through a fascinating era of the sport. Thanks for sharing, John. And thanks too to Silverstone for their hospitality. Well, that's it for this episode, but we'll be back very soon with another superstar from the world of F1. While you wait for the next episode to drop, why not subscribe to Be On The Grid if you haven't already? We're on all of your favourite podcast apps, including Apple and Spotify. And thank you for your kind messages about last week's show with Felipe Massa. He struck a chord with many of you, including Nicholas Harburg, who said, It took me three trips to and from work to finish the Felipe Massa episode, and that's not a bad thing. I enjoyed it immensely. Every episode is refreshing and honest. Keep it up. Well, we'll try, Nicholas, and thank you for your message. And like Nicholas, please keep your feedback coming because we really love it. Remember to use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid and you can tweet me at Tom Clarkson F1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.